And that's one of the things about religion that we have to remember when we're talking about that makes it such a, a hot topic issue is because we're talking about law. Who gets to be God? Who gets to be God's deputies? Who is the most high? Who is the divine authority? It's all about the claim to the most high. The only way that somebody can be higher than us is if we give away our power. Because there's nobody, we're all equal. But we're not equal in our knowledge, so ultimately, I think it does have to be a hierarchy, but it has to be a cooperative hierarchy, like a bee colony. We have to, it's about what our value system is, what we care about. Hello, hive mind. Today is May 19th, 2020. I am your host, Nate Cap. Welcome to the fourth Cubbyhole podcast, where important topics are unveiled, discussed, and tested. Our website is cubbyhole.com. That's C-U-B-B-Y-W-H-O-L-E.com. Today, we are going to switch it up a bit. I have a really special guest and close friend, Dylan McCormick. He is an occult researcher, studies and teaches natural law, has thoroughly studied the Constitution. He has a passion in video game designing, and he has built a really strong marriage with his awesome wife in Idaho. He was going to come to the Seed 4 growth event in May, which was postponed, but we are going to get into some of what he is going to present here today, including exploring mainly the principle of self-defense and the Second Amendment. Thanks for being on, man. Absolutely. I'm glad to be on. Awesome. So uh, one of the first questions I have for you is, what is the right of self-defense and why was it written into the Second Amendment? Um, so I think to answer that question, you first have to ask yourself, what is a natural right even? Um, and the, the quickest way that I can define that is a natural right is something that you can universally will, that all entities are capable of doing. And in doing this action, it does not prevent any other entity from practicing the same thing. And so self-defense is, it fits that bill. It is something that I can universally will all other agents are capable of because it is not aggressive action. It is defensive by its very nature. Uh, it was written into the Second Amendment because the Constitution is ultimately a, a body of government trying their best to recognize natural rights themselves. And so the Second Amendment is derivative of the natural right to self-defense. And is there anything other than man's law that is limiting our right to self-defense? One of the largest problems currently, I would say, is culture. So it's man's law and man's perception of how society ought to operate. It has a, a very chilling effect if uh, all of my neighbors really look down on a certain behavior or ownership of a certain thing. And that might be a lot more deleterious to uh, my ability to own something or act in a certain way than a law. I, it might be within any person's nature to disregard a law because they don't fear being caught by law enforcers. Social shame is a really powerful mechanism in preventing someone from doing something. 
and there is a lot of shame directed towards uh, the ownership of weapons, or I would, maybe I should say attempt to shame people for owning weapons. Not only this, you also have the uh, polarization or perception that is coupled with owning a weapon, that you are either crazed in some way or that you, you desire to use it. You want to be John Wick. You want to be some kind of mass shooter if you own this thing. Why do you think that is? Well, one, I think in general that people uh, have a fear about weapons in general, firearms specifically. And uh, the fear stems from, one, it is a killing tool. The very nature of this object is that it is meant to take a life. That is scary, objectively, in a lot of ways. So if you have this thing that is scary because it provides this function of dealing death, uh, it means that you have to be responsible around it. So that's a great obligation. And obligation is scary as well. So I'm scared because if I have this thing, now I have to live up to the task of, of bearing this burden. and. I think that a lot of people are also scared that others may use this thing against them. And so if you have the fear of having to be responsible for yourself in the possession of a weapon, and then you're also scared that someone else, in possessing this weapon, they might use it against you, it creates this, uh, this compounding effect where not only are you unwilling to own one to defend yourself, but... I can't even allow you to own one because you might use it against me. Right. Uh, another question I have is, what is the state doing right now that is creating a major threat to our rights to bear arms? So this is a, I really like this question because it's a, it changes basically once a week. It, it's in constant flux. This was a thing that I considered talking very heavily about at Seed, and at the time when I was writing my, my presentation, the TAPS Act and red flag laws were the current topic. It was, that was the current thing that was a very clear sign of greater infringement. Right now, today, in the midst of all of this uh, pandemic response, the coronavirus fear, you can look at all of the municipalities, the localities, uh, it's happening at state level in some states. You have different government agents who are attempting to ban the sale of firearms, in quotes, temporarily, because either, it, well, it's not safe to go outside, you might get sick, and so you have to go outside to go to, go to the gun store. I would say that it's part of it is a response in seeing all of these people suddenly become interested in buying guns. If I were in the government and I saw a bunch of people who consistently vote for gun control suddenly buying guns, that presents turbulence for me, a member of the government. I'm a little scared that all of a sudden these people who have been trying to disarm now don't care about this belief that they once had. They want to get armed. So the Constitution really doesn't protect us then no. if they're going to... <laughs> So what would you say to the people of like, what, what can you do then if the constitution is not going to protect you? And like, if you have a firearm, what can you do? 
So this should not be perceived as a direct call to action or encouragement of breaking the law, but we most people have recognition that a man-made law can be invalid. The consistent thing that I like to explain to people who maybe this idea makes them uncomfortable is we have a modern understanding in the United States that slavery was wrong. Well, slavery was the law. It was man-made law. And it was illegal to free a slave. It was illegal to aid in the freeing of a slave. So that means we know for certain, even in the U.S., we're capable of having laws that are counter to morality. So should we have punished someone who was caught for aiding a slave? Of course not. And we should be glad that those people did do that. We should be glad that people fight against laws that are unjust. Well, how do you uh, circumvent a law like gun control? Well, it's really easy. Illegally obtain firearms. The reality is that in most states, you are still capable of obtaining a weapon. Let's say you live in a place like California or New York. That weapon might be neutered in a lot of ways. It might lack uh, a lot of functions that make it eminently more usable, but you can legally obtain firearms and you should be doing that. You ought to be doing that. If it's a thing that you are, have any vague interest in, just go for it. Do some research. Buy a gun. Go out and buy a gun. If you are not able to own a gun for some reason, maybe consider circumventing the law. Where would you recommend people go to you know, further understand firearms like where where what what books or what researcher or you know someone who talks about firearms where would you send someone to help them understand firearms better well i suppose that def- uh, it depends on um what kind of information specifically they're looking for if it's a person saying like all right i don't want to buy a gun but i don't know anything about guns where should i go to learn about guns i would probably just tell them to uh, go on YouTube. And I know that's such a, it's such a vague, like not really helpful answer, but one of the benefits of the internet and, uh, and the way social media and YouTube specifically have functioned is that it really has uh, fostered uh, a lot of content creators that talk about modern firearms. There are people who talk about the history of firearms um, I do enjoy the content of a channel on YouTube called Forgotten Weapons, where it's uh, someone who is basically just talking about weapons in history, and he does field strips of, and detail strips of weapons and kind of just talks about their development. I think a lot of people probably, you, in order to own a weapon and be interested in defending yourself, you don't have to have any interest in the history of firearms or really like the, the underlying knowledge of that thing. If you, mo- most things that people interface with, they don't have a, an actual understanding of how it functions or how it goes together. Pretty much everyone uses a phone. Do you know how a phone actually works at every level? Of course not. It's incumbent to have an understanding of how a gun works to the extent that you can operate it correctly, but you don't need to know absolutely everything about firearms in order to uh, own one and use one effectively. Something I've been seeing in the news 
that I've heard you uh, speak on is these people, they're called tracers, that are going around door to door looking for people with a disease that's currently taking place right now. Uh, what, who are they and why are they so dangerous when it comes to owning a firearm? So right now, to my knowledge, there are two states. One of them I can't remember. The other is Nevada. And at the state level, they are right now authorizing these contact tracing groups. If people want an idea of what type of response this is, they should look at the the construction and founding of the Department of Homeland Security directly after 9-11. You used this event as a pretense to construct a new layer of law enforcement. And this is um, a really abstract and strange form of law enforcement because it's enforcement of laws around you being sick or potentially having associated with someone who is sick. So these contact tracers will be authorized to canvas. This is a word that I see used very frequently is canvas. It's, um, it is something of a, of a buzzword. They're going to canvas. They're going to uh, go out and kind of have an understanding at this local level of who has been sick and who have you been around? And what it does is actually quite similar to the TAPS Act, where the TAPS Act, I cannot recall off the top of my head what TAPS stands for. The way the TAPS Act functions is basically that it allows police departments to conduct individual threat assessments of uh, people in households. You can look at the way uh, law enforcement in some states, they will color code uh, a household depending on who is there. Uh, you get a red color coding if you might be someone who is a threat. Well, these contact tracers provide a new avenue to allow for the individual assessment of certain people. I don't want to interact with you. You don't want to interact with this contact tracer. And what that means is... Uh, you may be somewhat standoffish. Well, these people are authorized by the state to be able to investigate you to some extent, to come into your home, to make sure that you haven't associated with certain sick people, to know where you've been. And to the extent that you are going to resist interaction with these people, they will be authorized to have police or other law enforcers aid them in basically coercing you. It is a way of almost guaranteeing conflict between people who aren't willing to play this game, to kowtow to this type of behavior. That's crazy. Um, what is it? What is, um, I, th I feel like th that leads to the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is uh, what the, the boogaloo means and why that's a very dangerous thing. So... The boogaloo is basically this term that developed memetically where it was a non-serious, it was a playful way to refer to the notion of a second civil war in the United States. The peak of its popularity resulted 
in the I believe it was the ADL recognizing it as um, uh, this was their their words a right wing hate term I believe and the boogaloo really evolved out of this culture of uh, this modern culture of people being tired of infringement upon their rights and you have this happening at multiple levels i think you have a lot of people who would probably be defined as like somewhat mainstream conservatives in the united states who are tired of the the slighting of specifically the 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 ability to own firearms and i think that you also have you know uh people who are like small aisle or statist libertarians who are involved in this you have people who are anarchists who are involved in this the central issue does generally seem to me that this this boogaloo culture uh, evolved out of people seeing all of this effort being put into depriving people of the ability to own firearms to own weapons it's dangerous for a couple of reasons i would say it's dangerous one because while i think it was funny. I, I, there have been funny things that have come out of it. I would also say it's a little bit cringy. It's dangerous that you are making light of this thing, and we should approach the idea of a, of a civil war, any war, any form of killing, should be really broached very seriously. I'm all for gallows humor, but one... Self-defense is a serious topic. You are the, the boogaloo or the idea of this second civil war is being evolved uh, out of um, a, a, very, a very serious issue, which is your rights are, you feel your rights are being taken from you. It's also a little cavalier to just say, well, oh, well, we're just going to have a second civil war. Are you? Do you really understand the implications, the way that societal collapse occurs if this, if this happens? I think that people, if, if you right now are listening to this and you are a person who is like, I, I, I just want to do a second civil war. I just want to go out and kill people. That's, that's what I think the solution is. How much energy have you put into changing people's minds through speech? How much energy have you put into a peaceful reconciliation with people people are open to having their minds changed whether they understand that or not and it's about finding ways to communicate with people and often the ways that we use to communicate with people are social media and i will say that i don't think that that is an effective way of doing this you should do this with people in your personal life if you know someone who is a, a person who you think you would come into conflict with in a second civil war, try to change their mind peacefully. Approach them as if, believe that they have good intent and speak to them as if they're your peer. You will make ground with that person, most likely. And that has been my experience in my personal life. Yeah, and so I would say that's exactly what the militia is all about. So if you want to go ahead and uh, tell us uh, about the the militia and how that's defined in the Constitution, uh, I think we can definitely better understand 
what it means to spread this information and help people understand that we are the militia and you know it's about educating each other and you know caring enough to educate each other rather than act out of emotion and not not really knowing uh, what your rights are and how to handle hard situations like we could be in so the militia is first i i want to say what the militia is not the militia is not the military in the second amendment the term militia the word militia i believe is actually capitalized and it is used very specifically because a militia is comprised of a body of civilians. You are not a professional soldier if you're a militia. You are a person who is capable of mustering. You're capable of joining up with other people and using force. But that is not your job. That is not your profession. So in I have a, a, a few instances of the Federalist Papers mentioning the militia. And let me be very clear. I am anti-Federalist in nature. But it is useful to look at this document that was used to sell Federalism, that was used to advocate for it, because even in this document, uh, John Jay and uh, Alexander Hamilton are saying very clearly what the militia is and how it's going to function and how it's going to keep the federal government in check and the importance of it. So in Federalist Paper Number 4, John Jay specifically mentions the militia must be consolidated into a single corps, C-O-R-P-S, for people who aren't familiar with that, basically meaning a, a, a military structure, that it must be consolidated into a single corps in a time of mustering when dealing with foreign threats. So what does this imply? It implies that typically the militia is operating autonomously from one another. The militia are state entities. They're not a nationwide entity. And one of the arguments that you very consistently see is, oh, well, the militia is the military. No, they're not. The military is the military. And the militia is not the National Guard either. The National Guard is, one, national in how it is organized, and two, it's a branch of the standing military. In Federalist Paper Number 24, Hamilton states that a small standing military is, it may have to exist. In fact, it's going to have to exist, no matter how distasteful it is. And the utility of this small standing military is that they're going to occupy garrisons, and it's because they're concerned about uh, dealing with American Indians. They're concerned about Britain and Spain. And they're worried that if they have to occupy these garrisons with uh, militia members, that the militia members are basically going to burn out. They're going to be separated from their families, and it's going to basically discourage them from even being in the militia. So what that means is that in, this, in Federalist Paper Number 24, Hamilton is recognizing a military a standing military is not the militia. We're going to have this thing, and it's going to be small, but we're going to have to have it, and it's going to be distinctly different from the militia. And uh, the last thing, uh, the last example from the Federalist Paper I'll bring up is Federalist Paper number 29. It states that the militia are meant to be regulated, and this is also wording that is used in the Second Amendment itself. 
It's an anachronistic term. To be well-regulated means to be organized or in uniformity. And that they are going to have to be able to be organized into a uniformity by a federal body, potentially, but also at the state level. So a militia is going to have to be able to be organized in such a way that all of the members of that militia are versed in the same tactics, they have similar weapons that they can exchange with one another, there is compatibility in their weapons and their equipment. They will generally operate as state entities, but also the Federalist Paper number 29 recognizes that the union, the federal government, is supposed to have a duty to arm and discipline them, and that that also is going to exist at the state level as well. Hopefully that, that, that answers that question. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad that you got those documents. It's interesting, whenever I talk to people about the forefathers, mm-hmm. they're so quick to say that the forefathers were slave, all of them were slave owners, mm-hmm. and therefore I'm throwing out everything of the Constitution and what it means. What, what is your take on uh, the forefathers, and were they all slave owners? So, one, just a, a few minutes of research will yield the information to anyone that know they were not all slave owners. Something that I think is really important for people to understand is that history is uh, about, and in fact, one of the founders actually used a quote that was similar to this, it's about standing on the shoulders of giants. You are working in modernity to create a better future using the tools that were left to you from the past. And it's also a mistake to consider the the founders as a, a monolith. There was great disagreement among nearly every person. And if you uh, want this to be illustrated for you, look no further than the relationship between someone like uh, Samuel Adams and Alexander Hamilton or Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was a vehement anti-federalist. He's still in this same body of people. So I want to go back to this idea that you are working with tools from the past. Um, I One of the things that did get me into natural law was basically uh, Western philosophy. And I uh, was... I became, over time, I actually resisted it quite a bit at first because I uh, used to be a moral relativist. I uh, became a, a really, really fascinated by uh, Descartes and Immanuel Kant. And really, we, we don't get Immanuel Kant unless we have Descartes. And maybe we don't get either of these people if we don't have Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. So we also, in that same way, we don't get the Constitution without the Magna Carta. I look at the Magna Carta and I go, that's weak. That's, that's nothing. The Constitution, oh, there's, there's, there's more there. And so I can look at someone who I don't agree with everything that they've done, but I can recognize the good that they have done, and I can say, all right, I'm going to take the constructive things that they've done, and I'm going to build them even stronger. And this notion that uh, someone has to have done absolutely everything correctly for me to be able to recognize any amount of good they've done is, is absurd. And it's especially absurd when you consider 
the amount of people who might say something like, oh, well, the, the founders were all slave owners, and so nothing that they did was positive. We have to throw it all out. There's a decent chance that this very same person will defend the actions of some other tyrant in history saying, well, you know, they, eh, it was positive because uh, it's fine that Stalin did the Great Purge because he industrialized Russia and the effects of that were so good. There, unfortunately in history, and I'm not justifying this, it is simply the state of things, most things that are positive have been coupled with absolute horrible ramifications. And what we should do is work to take the positive and excise the negative things from it to strive towards perfection, to strive towards perfecting the things that we have left to us by past generations while getting rid of the errors that they made. All right. So that brings me to my next question, which is I hear this so much where people say high-powered guns of today weren't accounted for when the Constitution was written. So in your understanding, what difference does it make whether a firearm can shoot multiple rounds or just a few, like a musket, as everyone refers to when making this argument? Uh, it doesn't make a difference. Um, the Second Amendment is outlining principle, which is that the citizens of a nation ruled by government in order to maintain freedom, they are going to have to be as well armed as whatever standing military exists and that they are going to have to have projective force that keeps the government in check. Recall that the founders are a group of people who were terrorists that overthrew an empire. They recognized very intimately that force was a valid way of uh, either eliminating tyranny or keeping it in check. They knew that it, there was the potentiality that the government they were constructing could become tyrannical and that people were going to have to stop that. So when you look at weapons, the nature of basically all things, weapons are included within this, is that they advance, they become more complex over time. And I, there is a, 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 I guess it's a phrase that I really like, which is, brace of pistols. A brace of pistols is basically a way of saying that you are carrying multiple pistols in a belt, generally. Because you have these weapons during this, this time period when the uh, founders exist, they don't really contain multiple... They don't, they don't have cartridge technology. They're shooting these, these balls from like flintlock guns. And so you, what you want to be able to do with any weapon ideally is have it be as efficient as possible. So the nature of the efficiency of abrasive pistols is I am able to fire one and then immediately grab another. In terms of this, uh, this notion of high-powered weaponry, well, perhaps some of the highest power weaponry of their, of their day would have been uh, galleons, like warships. And you have a letter that... A, a citizen wrote, and I don't recall who it was to, I, I believe it was someone in their locality, but ultimately Thomas Jefferson winds up rendering his opinion on this thing. And his response is essentially, of course you are able to privately own a warship. 
it's a, it's almost like you didn't even read the Second Amendment. Like, yeah, you get to own arms. It's a general term. It's a catch-all term for weapons. And if we have this this belief that, okay, the founders, uh, well, there's no possible way that they could have seen weapons advance. They, they could not have foreseen that weapons would advance to the current state of complexity that they're at. Well, then why would the, uh, why would agents of the state, should police be allowed to, to use modern weaponry then? Or should they also be equipped with muskets and flintlocks? Let's also remember that firearms technology advanced while the founders were still alive. Benjamin Franklin himself worked to increase the effective firing rate of uh, weapons himself, and in many ways uh, was working on uh, technology that preceded uh, reciprocating fire, lever-action guns. So the nature of this thing is basically that Anyone who has sat down and thought about it for even a moment would understand weapons and all things constantly evolve in terms of complexity. And to, to imply that the Second Amendment only includes muskets, it basically assumes a very high level of ignorance uh, on the part of the people who constructed the document. So you're saying that if the military has a tank, we should be able to have a tank. Yes. Your ability to own a tank doesn't even necessarily mean that you ought to use a tank. And that's, a, that's an idea that I think challenges a lot of people. Uh, there are people who do this with, with firearms, though. You own firearms. It doesn't mean that you're running around using them, necessarily. I'm not, gonna, I'm not advocating that people, uh, oh, I'm just going to you know, take the tank on down to the, uh, to the grocery store <laughs> to get some groceries. Um, if we are accepting as a presupposition that what the Second Amendment gets at is that in order to have a free state, you can't limit the rights of the individual to keep and bear arms, and that the reason that you're doing this is because they might need to put the state into, they might have to check the state's power with this forceful capability, then it means that they're going to have to possess all the same tools as the state. And uh, one of the things that is really unfortunate, and this kind of goes back to this notion of the boogaloo, the, this second civil war, is when you make uh, direct conflict impossible, what you ensure is that when there is conflict, it will be asymmetric in nature. And what I mean by asymmetric is, uh, it refers to this notion of asymmetric warfare. Let's take a look at what has been going on in the Middle East for decades. We are, our military is apparently not capable of besting a, a group of people who are uh, decentralized in nature. They're using like Soviet era weaponry and they're not concentrated in urban areas largely. They're out in the open and we have really every technological advantage possible in terms of, of engaging groups like Al-Qaeda, groups like ISIS, and we can't oust them. We cannot stop them. And that's the nature of asymmetry. You are, our military is designed to fight another military. And so when we, if we 
reach this point where a second civil war is happening, the people who are engaging in it are not going to be engaging with law enforcers directly, most likely. We're going to unfortunately see a lot of uh, civilians caught in crossfire. And I don't want that. And I really, I don't think anyone wants that. It's, it's a horrible idea. It's a horrible thing to have to think about. But that is where we're headed, is basically that if conflict arises, it's going to catch up people in it that have nothing to do with it, really. Shall not be infringed. What does that really mean to you? So I'd like to read the uh, first version, the first proposal of the Second Amendment. This is how it was worded. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Semicolon. A well-armed and well-regulated militia being the best security of a free country. Colon. But no person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. This is the way that the Second Amendment uh, was originally written. The, you'll notice the first part of it uh, includes the shall not be infringed rather than it coming at the end. So the wording as it exists in the Second Amendment now is a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. There's a lot of anachronistic uh, terminology in that. And if I could just, I, I've kind of gotten at this a bit before, um, if I could just give a a modern wording of it, I think it will kind of answer the question the most effectively. An organized militia capable of operating in uniformity is necessary to ensure that a nation under government rule maintains freedom. Because of this, at the individual level, each person must be allowed to own and equip all weapons, and you can't attempt to limit this in any way. What is it to infringe? What does this word mean? It means to limit. And really, it gets at this idea, like, if, if you have uh, a space, and I even start to really, like, walk towards it in such a way to, to trespass on the space, I'm infringing on it. Infringement is really, uh, it's a very good catch-all term. It says that you, you can't limit this in any way. And it's such a clear part of the Second Amendment that I see a lot of people who uh, in spirit, I agree with them. You know, you know, they consider themselves to be a, a Second Amendment activist. They are they are pro arms. I they are pro self defense. You will see a lot of them simply use the phrase "shall not be infringed" because it is so clear. It is so obvious. So, if you had one message that you feel would be the most important message to people right now while our rights are being taken away and we're just under constant threat of being completely enslaved and locked down, what, what would that be? One, so I guess this is a, I, I have to answer it in multiple parts, I guess. One, if you are a person who is concerned about this, you should definitely, uh, at, at a bare minimum, you should already own a weapon. You should already own guns. And if you don't, go and get one. Um, 
I think it's really important to understand, you, you brought up the idea of a person owning a tank earlier. I think it's really important to understand that the Second Amendment isn't about guns. Um, the Second Amendment uses the term arms. This ranges f from everything to being a sharpened stick and even tanks, ICBMs, nuclear weapons. I don't want... I, first of all, the idea that like, oh, well, if, every, if you were able to own a nuclear weapon legally, every person would have it. Every person doesn't own a gun. Cars are extremely common. Not every person owns a car, but I don't want to digress and get away from the point. One of the most important things that you can do goes back to one of the things I brought up earlier, which is culture. Establishing a, a strong and positive culture around gun ownership. People need to, one, be steadfast in this fight. And it is a fight that is not necessarily physical yet uh it is a a cultural battle um where one of the uh worst long-term things that i see happening is not even necessarily that the state is enacting laws but that the culture around guns is shifting towards making it uh, unpopular or undesirable for someone to own weapons um it is uh social shaming and ridicule and humiliation that is preventing some people from being open about this thing, um, from maybe arguing with people, from taking a, a stand ideologically, verbally. And if you are a person who you are centered, you are acting in, uh, in right action, you are a, a morally good person, and someone is trying to deprive you of your rights, yes, maybe you do, need per you do need to be prepared for this notion of using force to defend yourself. I, the, I, the ide In the ideal world, this is not a thing that we would need to be concerned about, but let me make this as low resolution as possible. Would we be happy today to learn that people who were Jewish in Nazi Germany, that they defended themselves from the Gestapo arriving at their homes with firearms? Would we be happy to learn that people of Russia, when the NKVD came to take them to gulags, that they killed the members of the NKVD? I think we would be happy about that. That would be a thing that people thought was justifiable. Again, we culturally in the U.S., it is, it is thought of as favorable that slaves would rise up and eliminate their masters to free themselves because it is the right thing to have been done. So to the extent that you are going to live in a, a world, live in a place where law enforcement are going to come and use violence, to uh, take your gun because uh, it holds 11 rounds. It's, uh, the magic number is 10. You can't, you can't have that. Or, well, you were, you were red flagged because you said something that was questionable on the internet. Um, you, you posted this, this meme. You made a joke, and you're not allowed to say that and own guns at the same time. 
you get a lot of people that will tell you that, uh, oh, just cooperate with the law and, you know, fight it in court. This is an ugly thing for me to have to say, and I hate that I have to say it, but maybe fighting on your lawn is going to be a better solution than fighting in court. And every moment that people don't take a stand, you are losing ground. We are losing ground rapidly. And the very nature of arguing about the Second Amendment, and the reason that I choose to use the word, the, the term uh, natural right to self-defense, is because the Second Amendment and being pro-2A, being pro-gun, automatically limits you in your capacity to argue for this thing. When you are pro-Second Amendment, what you're advocating for is a civil right, not a natural right. Too many people lack the understanding that the Second Amendment is recognition of natural law. I get my rights from a piece of paper? No. I get my rights from my ability to be a rational agent and my ability, uh, or rather, the fact that I am uh, born of nature, born of, of God. Some people are, are, they cringe at that term. But you are capable of doing this thing, of owning this thing, without affecting any other being, and you ought not be limited if it doesn't affect another person. The Hegelian dialectic that exists around this debate is really scary, and when uh, your bedfellows are people like the NRA, you're in a position where they are almost worse than the enemies because I can rely on someone who is absolutely anti, anti-self-defense is what I would say or maybe even just anti-gun. I can rely on them to act consistently. The NRA do this very uh, deceptive thing of pretending, well, we're on your side. We're the National Rifle Association and you see... We're here to defend your rights. Well, the NRA has supported every uh, major instance of gun control uh, since their inception. And so they work almost as a, uh, really as a double agent. They're selling you down the river. And when you say, uh, I'm, I'm pro-gun, what you have done is you have already lost this argument of understanding that it's about weapons it's about the ability to arm yourself it's about the ability to be equal in your capabilities of projective force with the people who are ruling over you so to sum that up a little more concisely the things that i think are the most important are being educated about this properly being morally resolute being trained and capable of bearing and equipping and using firearms or whatever weapon you have, and if necessary, taking a stand defensively, defending yourself, using your natural right to self-defense. Well said. Um, something you said a little bit earlier was uh, when you were talking about Nazi Germany and, and uh, Russia. Why is it that people tend to not regard the fact that history repeats itself and that the same tactics that are being used today were used back then? 
Um, I think that people have this idea that, well, that happened there. It can never happen here. It wouldn't happen here. We are the people who defeated the Nazis. There is no way that we would ever uh, be similar to them. But the very nature of government, I would say, is that it's basically about shades of gray. It stops being absolute. As soon as you introduce the state, you are basically inviting this thing in that is, the state is just monopoly on uh, the initiation of force. And then that monopoly on the initiation of force uh, is used to secure the other things, the other functions that the state might perform. And um, I have this phrase that I like to use, uh, and I have found that I am using it more frequently, which is uh, the diminishing returns of tyranny. And what I mean when I say this is that when you use violence to enforce a thing, intergenerationally what happens is the understanding of the rule or law which is being enforced through violence is lost. So at the outset of uh, a culture, if in the first generation you have, maybe for example, you have everyone in this place understands natural law to a really high extent but they decide that for the next generation of people the way that they're going to police them is that they're going to use violence anytime this new incoming generation anytime they do something that is not in keeping with natural law we simply go to violence we don't really educate them thoroughly on the underlying principles why you ought to do these things we don't uh, introduce them to the deontological nature of the way natural law functions. We just say, do this thing or else. It's punitive. Well, what happens over time is you hemorrhage the full understanding of why you ought to act this way. Instead, it's, well, I better do this or else. And what that means is the incoming generation of law enforcers are also just going to understand how to apply violence. And you slowly tip, it slowly vaunts itself towards being exclusively about violence and punitive measure. So does that mean that if people are for gun control, are they essentially responsible for the violence that comes down on those who own firearms? I would say yes. If you support a thing, but you don't do it yourself, to what degree are you responsible for it? Obviously, the person who is actually doing the thing with their, their own hands, with their physical body, bears the greatest form of responsibility. But if I tell you that you are going to, you go assassinate this person, go kill them, and you perform the actual murder, of course, you're a murderer. But I'm, at the very least, a murderer by proxy. I commanded you to do this thing. And so when you have people who, first of all, I think it's really funny, this, this uh, the terminology used, gun control, that people are for gun control. People are, uh, I perhaps shouldn't use the term anti-gun because people who are gun control advocates aren't really anti-gun. They are more specifically for gun control. They're really advocating for consecration of force to the state entirely because how are we going to enforce disarmament? 
we're going to use agents of the state, and they're going to be armed with weapons. The irony, of course, is that a lot of the people who seem to be in favor of gun control also have issues with police. They think that the police are these unintelligent, racist thugs, and I wouldn't disagree with them, that know nothing but how to use violence. It's, this is just an instance of violence that they're, they're fine with. We're fine with seeing violence enacted on uh, this portion of people because we disagree with them. They have a thing we don't like. They believe a thing we don't like. So, yes, you bear responsibility if you are uh, willing this through legislature, through voting. You have culpability, I think. Very well said. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say before we get off here? I do really want to stress this idea that uh, I think that culture is a better avenue for uh, creating change than politics is. I understand that people want to uh, operate in the political arena. I do think that there is value in being able to uh, use the systems in place to try to undermine the systems in place, if, if that makes sense. People doing these, uh, these protests and these rallies, I do think it has an effect. And the visibility is also one that uh, feeds into culture. But really what we need to do is normalize firearms. And this applies to more than just firearms. We need to normalize this notion of self-defense. And there's a lot of different avenues that people can do that from talking to people. And I get that talking to people is uh, not necessarily what you want to do because it can be frustrating to talk to someone who disagrees with you. But if that is the case, that you are frustrated by this, Invest that time in people who mean something to you. Invest that time in people who you're close to that you disagree with. Do things at the personal level first. Don't spend your time arguing with someone on Facebook that is, one, probably going to ignore what you write, and two, is probably, maybe, they are getting off even on this uh, ability to make you angry. Act at the personal level Talk with people who you care about and have disagreement with. Take people shooting. Really. Uh, convince someone to go shooting. I've had multiple people in my life from my mother to close friends who were vehemently anti-gun, anti-self-defense. And being able to take this person out and show them how a firearm works and have them shoot the firearm. Uh, it demystifies it. It helps them to stop being scared of this thing that they don't have understanding of. And often fear comes from not understanding this thing. As, as I said earlier, uh, a lot of people are scared of firearms because they don't understand them. If you can demystify the way this thing functions for people, they will automatically feel more comfortable around it. And... When I say normalization, that's what you're doing. You're making people feel more comfortable about this thing. Yeah, that always, I've noticed that really helps in my life too. Well, I'm really thankful that you've done the work that you've done to be able to share this type of information. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people will benefit from this if you're listening. 
So that's pretty much all the time we have today, guys. So we hope that this show has been valuable and you can find more shows, news, and videos at cubbyhole.com. That's C-U-B-B-Y-W-H-O-L-E.com. Thank you and have a great day. Thanks, Dylan.